from people, then Kansas is your place. Actually, we were there for a, a three-day conference. The conference was all about learning how to live deeply in the kingdom of God. In other words, if we're going to live the abundant life that Christ desires for us to live, what practices are required, what beliefs are necessary, and what rhythms are helpful? What do you think? I'm not actually going to tell you all right now, but I'm sure this will spill out over in the coming weeks. How do we live in the kingdom of God? It is one of my greatest desires for myself and for my family and for each of you that we learn how to live the abundant life Jesus was dying to give us. A life of joy and peace, hope and love, a life of sweet intimacy with God and others. Do you want this life? It's not a trouble-free life. There are great sacrifices involved. It's a life of sacrificial love, after all, as Kathy Nimmer showed so well last week. But I truly believe with all my heart, it's the only life worth living. What else are you planning to do with your one wild and precious life? If it is your desire to consider the life made available by Jesus Christ, then you're in the right place. Our scripture passage for today tells the story of a man who was not really interested in this sort of life, at least not at first. He was a man of privilege, a man of courage, an army general for the king of Syria. His name was Naaman. Can you imagine that conversation? Well, what should we name him? What should we name him? What should we name him? How about Naaman? Sorry, that was bad. <laughs> I tested that joke with Stephanie before, and she thought it was funny, so we, we kept with it. Naaman was the army general of Syria. He worked hard to earn a good reputation. Our text even says that the God of his enemy was on his side. You know you have it good when your enemy's God is on your side. He had everything going for him, this Naaman, almost everything. And here's the thing, when you've got everything going for you, it's hard not to get the feeling that you don't really need God to be a part of the equation of your life. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, the saying goes. And if someone believes their life ain't broke, that life is working just fine without God, then it's hard to imagine that person coming to church for a fix. I first learned this in high school. One of my best friends, Brendan, was an agnostic. I hope he's listening today, but I'm sure he's not. <laughs> he said to me, I get why people want God to exist. I just don't feel like I have any need for God. In other words, religion is a crutch for weak, needy people. That's the popular saying these days. Religion is just a crutch, to which Billy Graham once responded, but don't we all walk with a limp? <laughs> Naaman was in a similar boat as my friend, my high school friend. He had everything going for him. He was smart, well-respected, successful. There was no perceived need for God. But for one exception, Naaman had everything going for him except his skin. <laughs> now, it's not that he just had sensitive skin. A condition I passed on to our poor little Lily, 
who gets a rash by just looking at a diaper. Naaman's conditions were far worse. He had a skin disease called leprosy, and not only did this make his daily routines very uncomfortable, but back in those days, leprosy was viewed as highly contagious. So not only did people look at, look at him funny, they also refused to touch him. Do you know what it's like to go days or weeks, perhaps, without human touch, without skin-to-skin contact? Pastors in training are taught the importance of touch when visiting with those who are sick or near death or grieving. If you've been there, you know how, you know firsthand how meaningful touch can be from someone you trust. The power of words pale in comparison to the power of touch when it comes to expressing love in those darker moments of life. Not only in the darker moments, more and more studies are rolling out that show how beneficial touch is to our emotional and physical health. Did you know this? For example, regular hugs from someone, I'm serious, this is a study, regular hugs from someone we trust have been found to lower people's heart rate and blood pressure. Additionally, physical touch like a high five or a handshake or a pat on the back has been found to strengthen team dynamics. Let's get even more nerdy for a second. Neuroscientists, the scientists that studies what's going on in the brain, and believe it or not, there's a lot going on in your brain and in your husband's. These neuroscientists have found that physical touch activates a part of the brain linked to feelings of compassion and reward compassion and reward. So when we're touched, our brains are signaled with this compassion radar. In fact, a simple touch can trigger a release of oxytocin, this chemical which is popularly called the love hormone. So Naaman had everything going for him, but he had leprosy. He did not experience the benefits of human touch. No hugs, no high fives, no love hormone. Naaman had no perceived need of God, save for this one exception. If God could make it possible for him to receive human touch, then he may just be interested in learning more about this God. So with this context in mind, we turn now to Holy Scripture. Scripture is God's gift to us. God breathed, inspired, It's useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, and for making us more like Jesus. Before we read, let's pray. Dear God, may your word do what you intend to do with your word. Teach us, Lord. Correct us. Heal us. Make us more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. 2 Kings 5 from the Common English Bible. And remember, the kingdom of Aram, this ancient kingdom, also known as Syria, they were almost always at war with Israel, okay? These folks were enemies. They did not like each other's Facebook posts. They were never friends, only enemies. So hear now the word of the Lord. Naaman 
a general for the king of Aram, was a great man and highly respected by his master because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. This man was a, a mighty warrior, but he had a skin disease. Now, Aramean raiding parties had gone out and captured a young girl from the land of Israel. She served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master could come before the prophet who lives in Samaria. He would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the young girl from the land of Israel had said. Then Arab's king said, go ahead, I will send a letter to Israel's king. So Naaman left. He took along ten kikars of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. In other words, a big old briefcase of cash and plenty of clothes. He, Naaman, brought the letter to Israel's king. It read, along with this letter, I'm sending you my servant Naaman so you can cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he ripped his clothes. He said, What? Am I God to hand out death and life? But this king writes me, asking me to cure someone of his skin disease? You must realize that he wants to start a fight. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that Israel's king had ripped his clothes, he sent word to the king, Why did you rip your clothes? Let the man come to me. Then he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. Naaman arrived with his horses and chariots. He stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent out a messenger who said, Go and wash seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and become clean. But Naaman went away in anger. He said, I thought for sure that he'd come out, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the bad spot, and cure the skin disease. Aren't the rivers in Damascus, the, the, Ab, the Abana, the Farpar, better than all Israel's waters? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and proceeded to leave in anger. Naaman's servants came up to him and spoke to him. Our father, if the prophet had told you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? All he said to you was, wash and become clean. So Naaman went down and he bathed in the Jordan River seven times. One, two. Three, four, we're doing all seven, five, six, just as the man of God had said. His skin was restored like that of a young boy, and he became clean. 
he returned to the man of God with all his attendants. He came and stood before Elisha saying, now I know for certain that there's no God anywhere on earth except in Israel. Please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, I swear by the life of the Lord I serve that I won't accept anything. Naaman urged Elisha to accept something, but he still refused. Then Naaman said, If not, then let me, your servant, have two mule loads of earth. Your servant will never again offer entirely burned offerings or sacrifices to any other gods except the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master comes into Ramon's temple to bow down there and is leaning on my arm, I must also bow down in Ramon's temple. When I bow down in Ramon's temple, may the Lord forgive your servant for doing that. Elisha said to him, go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. What a, what a rich, fascinating story. We're going to look at four movements. We see four movements in Naaman's life with God in this little story. Our own journeys of faith share much in common with Naaman's journey here. So let's unpack these four movements. The first movement is the approach. Think about Naaman's intent when he approaches the God of Israel. What did you notice about his intent? Naaman's original intent in approaching the God of Israel is based on nothing more than self-interest. He wants only to be healed of his leprosy, and he wants it done smoothly and efficiently. He even seems a bit entitled to the quick fix, doesn't he? After all, verse 9, Naaman arrived with his horses and chariots and with a briefcase of cash. But when the poor prophet Elijah, the man of God in his little house, when he doesn't do the magic like Naaman thought he would, he throws a temper tantrum. But Naaman went away angry. He doesn't get what he wants in the way he wants it, and he throws a temper tantrum. And believe me, I know a temper tantrum when I see one. I'm becoming more and more familiar with temper tantrums. On occasion, our daughter Lily will even have one too. It's easy to poke holes in Naaman's approach to God. But let's be honest, haven't we all done the same thing from time to time? We approach God out of self-interest. We don't really want to change. We may pay lip service to the idea of being transformed into Christ's image, but really what we want is for God to make us feel a little better about ourselves and about our world. So we go to God like we go to a therapist, not interested in a relationship, but only interested in fixing the immediate problem. Perhaps you're here today with the same attitude that Naaman first had as he made his way into the presence of the living God. You're here because you want God to meet your most pressing need. That's not a bad thing. God doesn't shame you for it. But maybe, like Naaman, you feel a little entitled. That's a little bit of a problem. After all, like Naaman, you've 
come with your, with your feelings of importance. So you expect the transaction to go smoothly. Isn't this how the church thing is supposed to work? I show up, pay my dues, and in return, I receive from God what I need. When the service providers, the church leaders, <laughs> fail to deliver, you stomp out of here like Naaman, angry. Naaman arrived with his horses and chariots, but Naaman went away in anger. What do you want out of God? What do you want out of God? Do you want a relationship or a quick fix? If you want a relationship, an active, responsive relationship, it's going to be hard, but so beautiful. Or do you only want to be clean, cleansed from your guilt, perhaps, even if just for an hour, so you can go home feeling a little better about yourself and about the world? What do you want out of God? I dare you to ask yourself this question later this afternoon. Ponder it, probe it, pray it. God, what do I want from you? Naaman wanted only to be healed at first. So what's the remedy for Naaman's self-interested approach to God? What will be required for him to go further in the spiritual journey? In a word, humility. To advance in our life with God, we must apply this remedy as well. Humility. The remedy to our spiritual self-interest is humility and a childlike trust. In his own eyes, Naaman is a very important man, but not in God's eyes and not in the eyes of the prophet Elisha. Did you notice that in the text? Instead of paying Naaman the respect of coming out to meet him face to face, Elisha decides to teach him first a lesson in humility. He sends his servants instead, and they tell Naaman to do something that sounds absolutely childish and completely inefficient. But those of us who have been schooled by Jesus know that one cannot enter the kingdom of God without becoming like a child. That's the first step to remedy our self-interested approach to a relationship with God. We have to learn how to trust that God has our best interests at heart. Like a child humbly trusts her father, so we must all become like children before our Heavenly Father who loves us, and we must trust him. This relational trust is really what the biblical word faith is all about. Having faith does not mean holding abstract ideas about God to be true. That's just not what it means. Having faith in the biblical sense means having trust, a relational trust in God who has come down to us in the person of Jesus to help us with our trust issues. Naaman learns this lesson eventually by accepting the correction of his servants. He becomes humble. Our father, his servant said, if the prophet had told you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? All he said to you was wash and become clean. Point 
taken. So Naaman humbles himself and does this childish, inefficient thing by taking a bath seven times over in the Jordan River. By the grace and power of God, he is healed of his leprosy. He becomes touchable once more. So that's the second movement in Naaman's spiritual life. He is met by God. He is met by God, the living God, and so are we. When Naaman first approaches God, he wants only his most pressing need met. He wants to be clean, capable of receiving that most vital sign of affection, human touch. And who can blame him? But what's remarkable is that he gets it. God meets him in his place of need. God heals him of his skin disease, and he is touched, touched for the very first time by the God of the universe. Praise God, the God of all compassion and grace. But he also gets more than he bargained for, and so do we when we're met by God. God meets us at our place of need, but he doesn't leave us there. When we're met by God, what we get is not simply a quick fix, but a relationship, a responsive, loving relationship with the living God, the God revealed in Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. But this relationship will not be easy. If we want out of this relationship what God wants out of this relationship, we will need the courage of a general marching into battle. For what God wants is to transform us into the image of Christ. And transformation aches. But how beautiful, how splendid is the soul that emerges from her cocoon, from this transformative relationship with Jesus. Like a butterfly emerges from her cocoon, so our souls emerge glorious before God. That's what happens when we take this relationship seriously. My friends, God takes this relationship seriously. God's relationship with you. So seriously, in fact, that he shed tears and blood to demonstrate his affection for you. If we but respond with a fraction of that seriousness, how beautiful our souls will become by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the story of Naaman teaches us that it's a process. It's a process, and God is most gracious to us in the process. The first movement is approaching God with our self-interest, and that's natural. We must learn humility and childlike trust to remedy the situation. When we do, the second movement is a divine one. We are met by the living God. The third movement is the human response of gratitude. We move from humility to an experience of God's grace to the response of gratitude. Did you notice how Naaman's attitude changes after he's changed by God's touch? He returns to Elisha and says, Now I know for certain that there's no God anywhere on earth except in Israel. Which, by the way, this is an entirely different way of seeing the world for Naaman. So he goes on, please accept a gift from your servant. 
Naaman is humbled and he's grateful. And he wants to show that gratitude by giving a gift to Elisha. But Elisha, what's he do? Elisha does not accept the gift. Why not? (laughs) I think it's because Elisha doesn't want Naaman to think of this in terms of a transaction. I give you healing, you give me money. That's not God's economy of grace. Instead, God gives grace. God touches. God proves his love in sending into the world his only son, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh for us and for our salvation. And we respond not with our best attempts at a religious performance. Rather, we respond by returning the embrace The good deeds will come in time, but not as a transaction. And if we're viewing it as a transaction, we miss the beauty of the relationship. The good deeds will come in time, but they come as an overflow of our marvelous life with God. So first, we approach God with self-interest and we learn trust. Second, God meets us in our place of felt need, but he doesn't leave us there. And third, we respond with gratitude, however we know how. Fourth, last one, we keep on learning what it means to follow God day by day. This is of utmost importance here. No matter, no matter what else, we just keep on pressing onward, pressing forward day by day. That's what this last section in our scripture passage is about, I think. It's a little perplexing, but Naaman is a new convert, if you want to look at it like that. He now has an entirely different understanding of God. As scholar N.T. Wright says, up until now, he had worshipped his local Syrian god, Rimon, as a matter of course. But Naaman has now discovered something about Rimon, He may look fine sitting there in his shrine, but he's not much good when it comes to leprosy. But the God of the enemy, Israel, now here's a God who beats Ramon hands down in the healing business. So Naman can't help but recognize that this God has reached out and touched him. The problem, though, is that Naman now has to rethink his entire view of things. His old God has failed him. What do we do when our gods fail us? The new God has blessed him and proved himself to be the only true God. So, as Wright says, Naaman is caught between this vision of a living, loving, and healing God and the reality of the compromised and muddled life hemmed in by lifeless and useless idols. So in the midst of this, uh, this sort of um, this pickle, he has a word with Elisha about it. Elisha, man of God, I'm going to be in a little bit of a pickle when I get home. You see, my master, the king of Syria, he still bows down to the Syrian god, Rimon. And he's old. When he bows down, he leans on me, so I must also bow May the Lord forgive your servant for doing that. What's Elisha's response? 
Usually when uh, someone is sort of planning a future sin, we uh, pastors don't say, well, I'll forgive you for it when you do it. <laughs> that's, that's not how we typically see things. So what's Elijah's response? Is it, no, you must never bow down to false gods. You must be like Daniel and pray only to Israel's God, even if it costs you your life. Oddly enough, that's not how Elijah responds. Instead, Elijah says quite simply, go in peace. Does that surprise you? <laughs> it surprises me. Elisha does not correct Naaman's future behavior, which feels at least like a compromise to worshiping Yahweh alone. Instead, he simply says, go in peace. What do we make of this? Well, here's what I think. I think it's a nod to the fact that becoming like Jesus and growing in our relationship with God is a process. That's not an excuse for wrong behavior, but here's the reality. We are, we who want to follow Jesus, we are gradually dying to the world we once knew in order to come alive to the new life in the kingdom of Jesus. We are gradually dying to the world we once knew in order to come alive to new life in Christ. And God is gracious to us in the process. God forgives our compromises. God understands the ache of transformation. God knows the growing pains. God mostly wants us to just stick with it, to stay oh so close to his presence, to continually hear God's word, to keep coming back to God in prayer, even when it feels like no one's on the other side of the line, to remain in close friendship with others trying to follow Jesus. God is gracious to us, my friends, in our weakness, and God has sent into our hearts the Holy Spirit to help us in our weaknesses. Yes, there may come a day when Naaman will be challenged to become like Daniel, to risk his life by taking a stand. But for now, the man of God speaks plainly. Go in peace. This is the word of God to those who are starting to follow Jesus and stumbling go in peace. This is the word of God to those who want to know God more but don't know where to begin. Go in peace. This is the word of God to those who pray, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Go in peace. This is the word of God for all who find themselves somewhere on the journey of faith-seeking understanding. Go in peace, my friends, wherever you are and stay Oh, so close to Jesus. He'll show you the way. Amen.